Want to drive greater success in social commerce? With Deloitte's latest creator economy research, you can. After surveying over 500 creators and 500 brands, our insights are helping CMOs and marketing teams harness the power of content creators. And not only that, but how to do it well. See for yourself by visiting cmo.deloitte.com today. What's the first brand way back in Minnesota as a little girl you remember having an impact on you? Well, believe it or not, um, I learned to read at a very young age. And I learned off of the back of boxes of cereal. Uh, Oh, it comes fully around here. It does come fully around. I have a weird relationship with um, brands from my my lifetime. So, um, yeah, we were a Rice Krispies family. And so um, I learned off of a box of cereal and surprised my mother actually doing that one day. Hi, I'm Jim Stengel, and I help major brands find their purpose and activate it, and the profits follow. For seven years, I was the global marketing officer for Procter & Gamble, where I oversaw the marketing of hundreds of brands. You may not know it, but the CMOs, the chief marketing officers of all of your favorite brands, are trying to connect you with your favorite products and services through purpose. And on this show, I delve into how they do it. Today, my guest on the CMO podcast is Monica McGurk, the chief global growth officer at the Kellogg Company the 114-year-old, $14 billion home of Frosted Flakes, Pop-Tarts, Cheez-Its, Pringles, Morningstar Farms, RX Bar, and many more of your favorite brands. Monica has been in this role for nearly two years, and it's her second stint as a global growth officer, previously serving at the $40 billion Tyson Foods. Monica has worked for General Mills, McKinsey, and the Coca-Cola Company, and even a short tenure as the executive director of the Ohio Chamber Orchestra. We'll get into this and a lot more in today's episode. This is my conversation with Monica McGurk. Welcome, Monica, to the CMO Podcast. This is the second time I've had the pleasure of interviewing you one-on-one. Do you remember the first time? I do. I remember it well. It wasn't that long ago. It was at, at Kellogg. We were at a conference for CMOs that was being held at the Kellogg School of Business here in Chicago. And it was probably, what, a year ago? Yeah, you're about right. Yeah. Yeah. The fall of 2019, when the world was very different. Indeed. So do you remember what we talked about? I don't actually remember what we talked about. I remember I enjoyed it a lot. I remember um, we talked a little bit about my writing. Yep. Um, I think we talked a little bit about innovation. If I had, yeah. no, if I had brought some joy balls, maybe. Yes, yeah. you did. Yeah. See, you yeah. remember it all. Well, today we're going to talk about growth, creativity, leadership, all of that and more. But the first things first, you work for the Kellogg's company, a large food company, primarily in breakfast and snacks. So I have to ask you, what did you have for breakfast today? I did not eat breakfast today. I had a yep. cup of coffee. Yes. <laughs> That sounds a bit like me. Yes. Some days I, I go right into it with just the caffeine to supercharge me. So, yeah. Uh, right. That's the beauty of the Kellogg portfolio. We've got stuff for all day long. I know you do. Well, we're all working, or many of us who are lucky are working from home. Any uh, habits or rituals for yourself as a leader during COVID that you're, you're happy with, that you're going to kind of continue as we come out of this someday? Yeah. Yeah. Um, 
One of the first things we started doing in my team was scheduling more formal, formal, informal interactions, if you will. Um, things just to give people an opportunity to decompress. One of those has been a happy hour, hump day happy hour, we call it. Um, and it's evolved over time. At first, it was just a check-in. Then it was a formal co- kind of cocktail thing where our head of culinary globally would um, kind of stimulate some conversation linked to food. Uh, right now, it's in a phase of sing-alongs and trivia. So we've oh got my, different you are teams. Evolving. Yeah, we're, we're trying all sorts of things, but um, we've had a team every week volunteer to take on some sort of trivia topic. We're using teams to get the answers live, and they get quite tricky. We've had themes around like food and movies, food and songs. Not everything is food related, but given our business, sometimes we mm-hmm. tend to circle around that. Um, and the sing alongs or sing offs now, um, they've gotten quite elaborate with people getting choreography and costumes and and the like. So it's fun. And I don't know what we're going to do next, but I think that kind of authentic connection, not around an agenda, Mm. people can raise something, but it's much more around the humanity of it and keeping the relationships going. That's something that for sure I want us to keep. And I'm certain that we will in some form or fashion. Yeah. Well, I said a few moments ago, we're going to speak about leadership and creativity and growth. And I want to kind of continue talking about leadership. About 11 years ago, we were in another crisis, the Great Recession, right? The 2008, 2009. And at that time, you were at McKinsey, I believe. I was. And you wrote an article for the McKinsey Quarterly called something like Leadership During Crisis or Leaders During Crisis. So I'm going to really push your memory here. So that is can, a, yeah, you are pushing my memory. Yeah, but, so I, anyway, we'll do the best we can. But if you go back and think about the main points or the feeling from that article that you wrote about leadership during crisis, you know, what were those points that you can remember if you can? And if you were to rewrite that article today for what we are all going through yourself and every, your colleagues, your friends, your network, how would you change that article? I'll this is a trivia what, one. It, it, well, <laughs> it's tricky. You're testing my memory. I'll, why don't I start with what I would say now, and then we'll see if it matches up, because um, it's been a while since I've taken a look at that one. Right now, the thing that really strikes me, um, first of all, is showing up as an authentic human being. You know, I, I was with a group of um, MBA students last week, virtually, and I shared with them the fact that every single person except one on my leadership team, including myself, during this time period has lost a parent or is probably in the process of losing a parent, going through a pretty significant illness. And that's just devastating. You add on the fact that you can't physically be there in many cases because of everything that's going on around us. You can't not acknowledge and start with the humanity of that. Uh, and, and that means people won't necessarily be their best on a day-to-day basis. And you can't necessarily absorb and accomplish everything that you normally would, no matter what the state of crisis or urgency is in your business. And so you really have to meet people where they are and recognize that it's going to fluctuate over time. And the event itself 
whatever it is, is just the tip of the iceberg. Um, these things take a lot of time to process and you don't know how they will show up. Um, so that's the first thing, just being a human being and acknowledging we don't know what's going on with anybody else who's sitting on the other side of the Zoom at any given point in time. The second thing that I've really appreciated during this time period is how digging deep to reconnect with purpose can really make a difference. And I know that you're a champion of purpose-driven brands. It's one of the key things you talk about on your podcast, but that's been a profound thing for us at Kellogg and, and for me personally, for sure. Um, you know, we are in the food business. We talk a lot and have talked a lot in the past about it's not a packaged goods business. It's a food business and food is special. It unifies people. It brings joy, celebration, escape. It can be travel on a fork when you're stuck in your kitchen um, and unable to do your normal travel routines. And in a time like this, when everybody's supply chain started to get completely out of whack, it was an issue of survival. And our company's ability to go back to our founder's purpose and reflect on our role in nourishing families, finding a way to bring delicious, nutritious food at um, affordable price points in ways that were accessible to people, really motivated our entire team. Um, the, the way our supply chain just rose to the occasion and didn't let anything stop them. And, and there were a lot of challenges. Um, you, here we had logistics challenges in other markets in emerging markets. You sometimes had situations where village elders didn't know who was designated as an essential service and they were physically pulling workers off of transportation and forcing them back into their homes, not letting them go into work, even though we needed those plants to be running. Um, everybody putting themselves on the lines to keep the food running. Uh, and that's not just our company. It was everybody in our supply chain, the farmers, the people who were stocking the shelves. It was really humbling um, and remains really humbling to see how people have risen to that occasion. And I think it's only because of the connection to the purpose that we have as a company and what our brands stand for in people's lives that that really um, was there for us. It brought out the best in all of us. And so I, I feel like we've been really lucky that that's part of our dialogue as a company anyway. Um, but in this moment, it's really come to the surface as one of the core things about the way we run our business. And I've been really proud of all of us and how we've responded to that. You know, I, I, I want to punctuate what you just said, Monica. You know, so often purpose is seen as a commercial idea that sometimes rises out of the marketing group or an HR group or an agency. And, uh, and it hopefully takes hold across the entire company. But what you just talked about is going back to the founders' thoughts for the company and the supply chain was the critical piece here. And the, and yeah. the purpose was the, you know, focal point of the supply chain. So purpose is a company idea. It is an idea for everyone. It is an idea that brings people together to work at a higher level in service of others. So that story you just told, I think, is a fabulous underscoring of what purpose really means. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. It, it, our brands individually 
have purposes that fit under that umbrella. We've got Mission Tiger, which is, you know, reinvesting in communities and schools where kids don't have access to sport. And right now that looks very different because people aren't physically necessarily playing those sports. Um, We've got the wonderful umbrella of belonging that has become part of the Fruit Loops purpose. Um, But that overarching purpose is really, really important to us as a company. And um, I, I think if you walked into any plant or rode along with any salesperson or talked to any brand manager anywhere in the world, people would point to that. Yeah. Now, these are very emotional points you just made about if you had to rewrite that article today, the points you would make. Uh, I'm going to not let you off the hook here and and at least ask you one question. Do you think it was a less emotional piece you wrote 11 years ago about leading during crisis when you were at McKinsey? This is a different crisis we're in now, right? Yeah, it's a very different crisis. You certainly have the recession, the overhang of the economic impact, but the suddenness with which this hit everyone, the severity because of the nature of the shit. And this wasn't just, you know, a financial sector falling apart with the ramifications. It was complete shutdowns of wide swaths of our economy with very disproportionate impacts because of who tends to be in some of those sectors. Um, So I I think it's very different. It certainly is physically different because of the isolation, the physical isolation that many of us continue to be under. Um, That has a psychological tool as well. If we are responding as our best selves in this moment, I think it's bringing out tremendous, wonderful things about our society as well. Um, That said, we have the added complication, particularly acute in the United States, of everything around racial inequality that also came in during the same time period. And that's put an even sharper edge on things. So um, for me, I, I would say definitely it's much more emotional. It feels much more personal. It hits more to what I care about as a human being. Um, it's not just Hey, is my 401k going to take a hit? This, mm-hmm. this gets down to, you know, root Maslow's hierarchy of needs types of issues. Um, so, yeah, it, it feels very different to me. And I think as a leader, the last thing I would say is you probably have learned more about this in the time since then, too, because being on the other side and industry side is different than being in consulting. The importance of focus and prioritization during a time like this being mindful of what's really going to matter to your organization, to the business and stripping away everything extraneous. Mm -hmm. Um, That is something that I don't think I would have been able to articulate back then, but certainly stands out to me now. I've heard that from almost every CMO I've talked to about how they're leading during this time. Mandy Rassi at Kroger, you know, which is obviously a partner of yours. She said it so well. She said, we have, we only are focusing on the very, very, very fundamental highest priorities. And my mind feels clearer. Yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's really cool. I see so many of my colleagues and peers being very mindful of creating space. So there's focus and prioritization, but also creating the space to step away. And I know it's a struggle, right? Cause you're, 
you're in the embrace of technology, which means we could never turn it off if we chose to. But I, I don't know if it's because I had a house full of kids um, and wanted to take advantage of that time while they were home, or if I was wise. I would like to think I was wise, but I don't know that I was. Um, but I find myself being more mindful about taking breaks, whether it's a, a walking meeting so that mm-hmm. I make sure to get sunshine or um, really turning things off so I can cook, which is something I love, and prepare a meal for my family in the evenings. Um, I think that's a, a habit I, I'm hoping that we can all make stick because I think it's healthy. Yeah, I do too. I had an early morning call this morning with a client. Uh, did that, prepared for it, did it. And then, you know, mid-morning, I, I said to my wife, let's go out for a one-hour walk. You know, so from yeah. 10 to 11 and back, you know, got the sunshine, got the blood moving, and I feel great. And, and I've been trying to do that since it started, and it really is healthy. I don't think we can go back to it, how we organized our days do. before. Yeah, that's yeah. right. It's, yeah. I think it's in our hands, and that's, uh, I think, a lot of what has shifted in the last few months for me is at the beginning, not surprisingly, I think everybody felt, how are we going to do? You know, you were a victim of circumstance. And now I think people feel like I can actually shape what's going on. Even if I'm in these constrained circumstances, how I choose to respond is up to me. You know, that classic statement of Viktor Frankl, mm-hmm. people are living that. Um, yeah. And I think it's causing a change of outlook that is really, really positive. Well, I want to keep talking about what you care about and creativity and writing. So I'm going to move into this space <laughs> of, of writing. I learned this about you when I interviewed you a year ago. You're you know, an author of three books, a trilogy, mm-hmm. sci-fi fantasy, primarily written for young women, young girls. Mm-hmm. And you've done all this in the last six or seven years, this trilogy. Yeah. And so I'd like you to talk about why what this has done for you and, uh, and why this is important for you. So it it probably goes back to one of those classic, um, life's too short aha moments. It's kind of a cliche, but I was at a point in my career where I was, you know, very successful partner, loved what I did, extremely busy, I still had three fairly young children at home. Um, I had put everything into work and everything into being a mom and all the stuff that I love to do for myself personally, gone. I just let it all get squeezed out. And so my tank was empty. So I started thinking um, about something one of my mentors had shared with me, which is go back and think about what you loved when you were a kid. And, you know, get that back into your life. And so I started thinking about those things and I had the screen on it of what can I do on a plane? Cause I was traveling a lot. So it needed to be portable. I couldn't re-pick up the piano. Um, And I landed on writing along the way. I found other things that became really meaningful to me about it. But the the biggest thing, it it was a huge creative outlet for me. And um, my family has been such a great support and encouragement through the whole process. Um, you know, they're older now, the kids are older, but they see what it does for me to have that, not just the time, but the outlet. Um, and they get involved. They help me brainstorm plots. They read my drafts. Um, I have a whole page of 
handwritten notes from my 14-year-old who just went through the draft of my new book um, a little bit ago. So um, it's been just a really fantastic way to invest in myself and keep that tank full. What would you say is the key to success for today's CMO? If you said data, you wouldn't be the only one. At Deloitte, however, we believe data is only half of the equation. The other half, story. Because data is the language of business, but story is the language of humans. And we believe the most successful CMOs know how to harness the power of both data and story. To learn more about Deloitte's CMO program and how we can help today's CMOs succeed, visit cmo.deloitte.com. You worked at McKinsey working with consumer companies, yeah. right, as clients. And mm-hmm. then you were at Coca-Cola, which is a 134-year-old mm-hmm. company, Tyson, which is an 85-year-old company, Kellogg's, which is a 114-year-old company. So you could actually write a book about catalyzing growth in iconic legacy companies. I hope you I ha- can. You have as much experience <laughs> as anyone in that area. So without taking the rest of this podcast, because we probably could, if you were to write that book with your incredible experience on McKinsey, which is such an umbrella mm-hmm. organization, and then your vertical experience in these three great companies, what would some of the leading chapters be in that book? Oh, good. what a fun book that would be to write. Um, one, one would be reframing. It's, I think for so many clients I've had, um, companies, kind of in general, right? Go back to consulting firm experience. No one hires a consultant for something easy. Generally, you're brought in on stuff that people think is impossible or they don't have the political will to tackle it the way they think it might need to be tackled. Um, And I think a lot of what I learned there and what I've been able to do um, elsewhere is simply the act of reframing and helping people change their inner and collective dialogue from why we can't to what would have to be true or what would it take kind of releasing, accepting and acknowledging all the things that don't work in the past. You're kind of saying, okay, well, what would have to be different this time if we were going to think about it in a different way and getting people to release that burden of the past and open themselves to a different kind of creative energy. Um, and it doesn't mean being Pollyanna-ish. It just means getting them into a different setting with a different group of people, a different fact base, um, to think about the problem from an angle, usually a cross-functional angle, by the way, um, so that they might open up a new solution space. So I think that's one chapter. A second chapter might be how to toggle the rapid cycle between strategic vision and pragmatism, particularly commercial reality. Um, And I I think I never learned as much in such a concentrated period of time as when I initially jumped from consulting into Coca-Cola. Because you think, my job there at, at Coke was initially very focused on strategy. And you think, well, you're coming from a strategy consulting firm that should have been easy. But man, it was so hard, not, not conceptualizing strategy, but getting stuff done, right? Everything we're talking about at the beginning around focus and discipline and prioritization, 
that really came home to me in spades at that time. And I, I think when you're talking about these massive, usually matrixed, usually global organizations, um, where process in many cases is king and relationships too, like you've got to choose. I don't want to say battles because that makes it sound adversarial, but you have to choose what matters and really focus on landing those few things that they got to be big enough to make a difference, but still have the room for the experimental stuff, right? And that it's an, a really interesting trade-off and um, being in startup land for that brief period of time, right, where you had to go do the pitch to investors and then the next morning you're stuffing envelopes for mm-hmm. for all of the people who are coming to your trade show like you got to cycle between those ways of working and um I embrace it I think it's actually part of the fun getting into the details of how you execute something um and then influencing because most of these these companies um and I think any senior role like I am lucky enough to be in, you're very rarely able to pull a command and control lever. Uh, My job right now, I don't control almost anything. (laughs) It's all, um, how do I partner with the P&L owners to find the things that are going to add value to them and and help accelerate their vision for growth and profit. Um, And that requires you great deal of influence means you have to understand the business in a lot of detail. You have to build trust. You have to build trust before you need it. And all of that, I think, seems obvious at one level, but it's not actually that easy to do on a consistent day in, um, day out basis. And it's what I spend a lot of time with my team on is the awareness of um, cultural agility when you're working in an organization that serves 162 markets, what's the cultural agility? How do you understand how decisions get made? Cause the structures and the processes aren't cookie cutter market by market. It takes a lot of learning for someone to be effective in that environment, especially when you're trying to push the envelope to open up something new. Um, so I think that that's the third chapter. Yeah, influencing. That's, that's that's a big book already. <laughs> no, <laughs> to, to to underscore what you said in the last one, there's a lot of research out of Spencer Stewart, the executive search firm from Deloitte, about the biggest way most senior marketing people, CMOs, if you will, trip up is they don't spend the time to build strong relationships with their colleagues at the top of the company, especially the CFO. And that's everything you're talking about because you have to start learning that earlier in your career. And I think we could do more with that in our education, in our business schools, because as you say, it is not easy, even for emotionally intelligent, experienced people to keep that front and center. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, depending on the business culture that you operate in, we're in a Midwestern culture, it's a nice culture. People might not give you the feedback you need early when it will be most helpful. And so it, it sometimes takes some conflict and butting of heads before people will say, well, actually, no, you're not, you don't understand my business. And here's why, or you thought you had alignment, but you really didn't. And here's 
exactly the three most recent examples of when you missed it. Um, so I think you've got to be aware and pressure test that with each other and learn, make sure you're learning the same language. I and mean, one of the cool things that I think we're doing right now as we're building our collective commercial muscle is we're investing in things like financial acumen and putting multiple functions together through the same training so that we can actually talk to one another and make decisions. At least we might not see the facts the same way, but at least we're going to have the same facts in the room mm-hmm. when we're talking about them. So you spend time influencing. I want to talk a bit, a bit, a bit more about how you spend your time, Monica, mm-hmm. your job description is pretty daunting, right? I'm just going to read it out. Insights and analytics, R&D, category strategy, global brands, marketing, revenue growth management, sales and channel strategy, digital and e-commerce. That's a lot of stuff. It is. And we, yeah. and we, ju- and we just talked about focus and priorities and spending time in relationships and influence. So give us a little bit of a peek into how you spend your time. Spend a lot of time on people. A lot of time on with um, helping, learning uh, people, whether it's like finding, attracting, developing the right talent, I'm getting to know people, um, how they're operating in their environment so you can support them. A lot of time on, on that. Uh, I've got regular routines with my functional peers, my PL. Um, stakeholders, building a global community around all of those disciplines and and an integrated commercial um, community that embraces them all and can and have that dialogue around the trade-off of investments, volume versus value, all of those good things that um, drive performance. So a lot of time on that. Pre-COVID, I would have spent a lot of time in the market, um, partly to build those relationships and see things up close, but also to be with customers, to go out into outlets, walk the outlets with our teams and see what are we seeing? How are we seeing things differently? What insights can we get from outside of our category? And, you know, forget about what we say in a PowerPoint deck. Is it showing up at the shelf? at the end of the day, that's what's going to really matter in driving our performance. So I get a lot of energy from doing that. Um, I know some people find it exhausting um, to be with customers or to you know be with large groups of people, but I, I just find it so fun and energizing. Uh, so that's probably for me the biggest thing I'm missing right now because it's not the same to go by yourself with your mask into a grocery store and walk it on your own, right? Uh, it just doesn't give you that same sort of uh, shot of adrenaline um, to do that. So um, I, I spend my time on that. Um, yeah, I'm very integrated into the performance routines of our company. So as much time as this takes, I'm, I, I am right there in those GM reviews, the region reviews um, with the executive team. And, um, and then I try to spend as much time as I can outside getting external stimulus. And that comes in all sorts of forms and fashion. I, some people might think of me as, um, I don't want to say frenetic, 
um, I connect a lot of dots. Mm -hmm. I get stimulation from a lot of different places. Um, I read a lot. I like to immerse myself in different environments. Um, I love learning about technology. And I think one of the big things um, that I and my team can do differentially to support growth is we don't have the day-to-day. We just don't. Mm -hmm. It's not our part of the racy. So we can take the luxury of stepping back and seeing where are things going or who's doing something really interesting, even if it has nothing to do with our business. And what could that mean for us or for our customers? Um, So spending time just immersing in new thinking, different thinking, bringing it together, uh, connecting the dots that people might not get if they're looking regularly just at syndicated data, right? Because mm-hmm. syndicated is pretty much the story of what has happened. It's not the story right. of what will happen. Um, so whether it's data or experiences or spending time with interesting people who are just going to stretch your brain, I, I try to do that and expose my team to that as much as possible so we can help think about where the future is, or at least what, what might we have to be ready for? Even if it doesn't really have a hundred percent against it, what could happen? And then what would that mean for our business? Anything you can share from what you're thinking about these days about where it's all going in food and beverage through COVID out of COVID. We talked earlier in the podcast about some of the insights you're seeing, but anything beyond that, you know, a five to 10 year you know, happening, yeah, fundamental yeah. change that you need to be prepared for. Anything you can share? Well, you know, I, I don't know that this will sound extremely um, groundbreaking necessarily, but I, I think in the next five to ten years, personalization, and, and I don't mean content in terms of digitization and AI, machine learning delivered content. I mean actual product personalization in food and Bev, we've seen some of it and, and some of it is more, um, I'd say connection oriented, like share a Coke, right. Um, that now is a few years old. Um, what Coca-Cola has done with the vending platform it has, those are early examples of it. If you fast forward and think about the microbiome, which is just becoming top of mind conscious for a lot of consumers. That's as individual as your fingerprint. And it is impacted every day by your sleep, your travel, what you consume, how you consume it. Um, It might take us some major technological leaps, including diagnostics that aren't gross (laughs) to be able Mm -hmm. to get there. But I think the idea of really recognizing the nutritional needs of a population, of an individual, and being able to meet those needs as they change through life stages or just through daily activity is going to be a really powerful unlock. And it has to be done in a way that still tastes wonderful. People, I I still fundamentally think it's going to be a small subset of the population that will trade off the enjoyment of eating 
to be able to get the nutritional fuel they need out of it. But um, that's a space that we're really excited about. And it plays um, well with our background and our strengths because so much of that gets back to fiber and the role of fiber in nutrition. So, so in a that's visionary in a practical way, if we're looking out, I don't know, maybe 15, mm-hmm. 20 years, a family might have very different diets, each one of them. They and could. there will be ways to deliver that. And, mm-hmm. and because we understand their genome, then it would be things that would make them healthier or energetic Mm-hmm. live longer, live a richer life longer. This is what you're yeah. getting at. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, sleep better, mm-hmm. right? The, the gut brain access is a very strong one and we're only beginning to understand it, but there's a general health halo. I think you get from good digestion, but there are all sorts of other things, your cognition, child development, I think it's an untapped area that over the next decade plus, we're going to continue to learn more about and figure out how to make that a reality for people in a way that's affordable. Because a lot of the food, customized food solutions that have been in the market to date really aren't scalable and accessible for the average person who's arguably someone who would need that even more Mm -hmm. um, because of some of the challenges that they might have in, in their environment. Um, so I think that's a, a really interesting space that will continue to unfold. And the others are, um, I would say, sustainability and our definition of um, sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, um, the solutions that make that, again, the norm, affordable, um, get us the next technological leap for agricultural output, but in a way that people will be hopefully more comfortable with, not feel like it's an either or, but it's an and. I think that's an exciting space as well. One more question about your role, Monica. You oversee marketing as part of your big role over all these areas. How You're a chief growth officer, not technically a CMO. So how is your role different from a CMO at other leading multinational consumer companies? Yeah, um, I I think everyone has a little bit of a different scope, right? So it's hard to answer that super concretely, but I would say in our organization, because in in our team, the CMO reports to me. Mm -hmm. So our CMO has, I think, a classic CMO type of scope. Uh, She's got portfolio strategy, category strategy, and the global brands. So the actual architecture, equities, identities, um, that foundational strategy for the brands that we have in play on a global nature. She's got insights and analytics um, and marketing capability. And kind of if I simplified it as that, Whereas some of the other commercial levers, like um, all the levers of revenue growth management, like um, Salesforce effectiveness, are not in that CMO suite. They are other people who are on my team. Um, So I think the difference may be, um, compared to particularly classic definitions of a CMO, I 
I do have all the commercial lovers. And one of the cool things about bringing them together is to make sure that they're working synergistically and in the right sequence. Right. So we, we spend a lot of time saying, Hey, we, we can't talk about and optimize the look of success in an outlet. If we don't have a clear category strategy to set planograms, like let's solve the right problem in the right order so that we're getting a one plus one equals three value out of this combination of commercial activity. Um, and I, I think bringing, and, and I think a good CMO will do this, bringing that perspective of the entire value chain, right? because we can market the heck out of our stuff and have great strategies to maximize our value creation for ourselves. But if we're not sustaining our partners in the value chain and creating more value for our customers than they could get if we just wrote a check, right? Then it's not going to last. It's a very short-term game. Um, and so I think that's the beauty of bringing this all together. We can think holistically about the value creation story and make sure we're driving win-wins, which is how we're going to win at the shelf and in the marketplace. You've been in the job about two years. What's the, what do you love most about it? Oh, our people. Mm -hmm. um, it's the same things that attracted me at the beginning. Our people are tremendous. Our culture is tremendous. Our brands, it's just an incredible portfolio of brands that punch above their weight. People love them. Um, and sometimes they're surprised when I tell them, oh yeah, that's not actually a global brand. That's just a U.S. brand. Like people are shocked because they do have this larger than life persona mm -hmm. in, in many cases, um, our purpose, right? They, it's a very genuine heartfelt purpose. And some companies, um, it's words on a website. You can see people living our purpose day in, day out. And and yeah, as we started this conversation, it really came home during this crisis, but it's one of the things I love the most about being here. I read a study this morning. It's going to be released in the next few weeks about big study using fabulous data about how purpose is highly, highly, highly correlated with shareholder value, financial returns. So we're getting more and more data on the power of this concept, yeah. which you, you've talked about a few times in the last, in this podcast. Hey, I want to end this with a bit of a lightning round on interesting questions about you. <laughs> okay. You, you, are, you are an interesting person. The first one is, how has growing up in this little triangle in Minnesota inf influenced how you lead? Oh, that's an interesting question. No one's ever asked me that. Um, I think because we were such a tight-knit community, I really value um, environments and, and like to create environments with a strong sense of belonging. Um, I, I think you'd have to layer in other aspects of my background. Um, I had tremendous positive female role models who were entrepreneurs in my dad's family in particular, um, all hard workers, you know, salt of the earth kind of people. But um, that sense of commitment to inclusion and making sure everyone has a chance to show what they can do and bring it to the table, I think goes back to that. For some time in the mid-90s, you were the executive director of the Ohio Chamber Orchestra. 
Yeah. <laughs> you know, within a few, you know a minute or so, what's that about? So um, the short version of that story is I had completed my business analyst program at McKinsey and had the option to stay or go on to my MBA. And I chose to get my MBA. I'd been accepted into an MBA program. Um, and because I started at a weird time at McKinsey, I basically had nine months to play with. Um, so I left and I just let it be known. Hey, anybody, if anything nonprofity comes up, let me know. I'm in the market. Um, and I got a phone call from one of the partners in the Cleveland office of McKinsey. His wife was a cellist in the orchestra. He sat on the board and their executive director had walked off. Uh, they found out much to their chagrin with very short notice that he left kind of a financial mess, which meant they were desperate basically to have anybody come in and help, help them clean things up. Um, I loved music. I uh, would not say I was a talented musician, but I did play a lot of instruments. And so for me, it was just um, complete fun, awesome experience to go in and um, turn around the financial situation. I got to deal with a union a negotiation because we were targeted by the musicians union that year. It was just a great experience. It's a great story. You yeah. know, just putting yourself out there. You have some time, the serendipity of that. And, and what a cool nine months. And I'm sure they benefited. You benefited. Oh, yeah. It was, yeah. It was fantastic. Yeah. Now, now, you studied government education and business during your time at Harvard and Stanford. What was your dream back then? Well, um, yeah, when I started off in college, we didn't have a lot of experience with college and professions and things in my family. So when I was accepted at Harvard, our parish priest said, oh, you're going to Harvard. That means you're going to be a lawyer. And so that's what I thought. Um, you know, I thought that makes sense, I guess. And I liked government. I, I liked the whole intellectual rigor of it. Um, so at the start of my journey, I thought I was going to go to law school and be a diplomat. Um, and then I realized- You would have been a good one, Monica. That would have been a good well, choice. Well, thank you. Thank you, Jim. I, I would like to think so. The problem was I realized that, um, well, two things by the time I was a junior. I realized, no offense to all my lawyer friends out there, but there were a lot of people I knew who were applying to law school that I didn't really like hanging out with. So I thought that was not a great sign. Um, and I had a number of mentors, including a mentor in a, a seminar that year, who started advising me, you know, you really don't want to do this. It was really, really an interesting situation because there's people who were in the course of their career or in their academic journey Say, yeah, you're like passionate about justice. That's not what this is about. You're not going to like it. You're going to hate it. Um, and I, that was very startling to me. Uh, and it's one of the first times I remember somebody actively leaning in to like mentor and advise and everything. Um, so I just, I stepped back and I said, I don't think I want to do this. My parents were really, particularly my mom, she was really worked up about it. Um, she liked having a plan and I, I couldn't understand. It's probably two decades later. She explained why she was so worked up. She wanted to make sure I could be independent no matter what. And she was worried, you know, you have all this student debt now and what's going to happen to you. Um, so I didn't know at that point. And 
I did one of those step backs. I emptied out my bank account and I went to architecture school for the summer. Um, and I loved it. Loved it. Worked like a dog. Um, critiques every week, 80 hour weeks. Uh, thought it was the best thing ever, but I couldn't afford to go to a master's program right out of the shoot. So I said, I'm going to get a job. And lo and behold, that's what I did. And here I am. So then you went to McKinsey and then back for your mm -hmm. MBA and you studied education. Yeah. Yeah. yeah the, and the education piece was, it's just been such a tremendous multiplier on my life. Um, I fundamentally believe in it. I was a public school kid. My kids go to public schools. Um, I just think it's a great thing for us all to invest in. And I knew if I had the chance along the way, no matter what I was doing professionally, I would want to try to help encourage, support, enable better education in this country. Last question, I promise, Monica, who would you like to hear on the CMO podcast? I would love to see the CMO of um, Nestle Waters. That's very specific. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you why. I think it'd be fascinating. And sorry, I have to like look up her name for you because I'm blanking on it right now. You've got this massive Nestle portfolio and they're in the middle of a, a divestiture um, where she's already been turning around stuff. So I think it'd be really interesting to hear you interview her on what that leadership journey is like and how in the midst, how you have to kind of like operate at two levels, like everything into the portfolio and the brand and building those brands at the same time that you're thinking through, how do I divest this and exit the business? Um, I think it's a really cool leadership challenge. Um, her name is Yumi Clevenger Lee. Hey, listen, I'm going to give you the last word, Monica. Do you have any final question for me now that I've asked you about 10,000 questions? Uh, yes. As you've been going through the last few months of interviewing um, my colleagues and CMOs, what is the one blind spot you may have picked up on in those interviews? Personal exhaustion and exhaustion of their teams. And so I think uh, we, we've gotten, we're, we're now seven or eight months into this, right? Mm -hmm. And people are um, behaving in some strange ways because they've been on surge and kind of, you know, they've been uh, reinventing everything in their lives for a long period of time. And we're kind of not wired to do this for that long. Mm -hmm. So I just think be highly aware of your own mental, physical, and spiritual health and of your teens because it won't be obvious. People will try to put on the best face for you. Yeah. So I, I, think, I think that's the big one right now. That may change in a few months. I would have probably said something different five months ago, but that's, that's the one now. That There's almost sense. a sense of ennui. You know, there's, in a way, a bit of a listful, listlessness. Yeah. And that's, you know, that's horrible. It, I think it takes effort. Yep. Um, I'll tell you that this is not a professional habit, but the probably the only personal, new personal habit I've developed is prayer. 
I had gotten out of the habit of regularly praying. And I can't remember, I think it was some celebrity interview, quite honestly. And I was like, that person prays? Hmm. I wonder, you know, maybe I should try it. And it has, it has been really interesting. I, I'd say it's a new habit. Um, but it is bringing me a sense of peace that I think I, I wouldn't get any other way. Probably meditation could do mm -hmm. that, but I'm, I'm like an infrequent, I, I get really deep into meditation and yoga and then I disconnect from it for a while. And because of my wrist right now, I'm in the out, I can't do the downward dog and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think what you're hitting on is so important. Yeah. We're trying to be more explicit about gratitude. Yeah. You know, and, uh, and prayer too. We are praying at dinner and I don't think I've done that since I grew up. Interesting. It's, it's yeah, it's, um, it just provides a connection to something greater, just like purpose does. Yep. Yep. Yeah. All right, Monica. Advice. That's a, it's a good one to end on. Okay. Thank you for this uh, wonderful, just very inspiring and thoughtful and warm, lovely conversation. Thank you. I've I enjoyed, enjoyed every it. minute of it. I, I always enjoy our conversations and I'll look forward to the next one. That was my conversation with Monica McGurk. This one was about as wide ranging as they get. There were so many issues that we got Monica's perspective on. I asked her what she was learning about leadership during COVID and she talked about humanity, and she talked about purpose. We actually talked for about 45 minutes after the podcast was over, so I think we need to get her back on. We talked a lot about what she loves to read, as she is an active author. And if you want to see what she's reading these days, check the link in the episode summary. That's it for this episode of the CMO Podcast. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends. And I would be super happy if you subscribed so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The CMO Podcast is a Gallery Media Group original production.